Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your man. This man is my land. California. The New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream Waters. This man was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 444, recorded on Sunday, October 16th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Boise, Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. For hundreds of years, damming American rivers and streams was widely viewed as a sign of the progressive march of civilized society, and some of the dams ranked among the country's proudest engineering and technical achievements, growing larger and larger even as fish struggled in ever greater numbers to reach their spawning grounds, and fertile river outlets turned to barren deserts. But after 1976, the Great American Dam Building era was definitively over, and public as well as official government attitudes shift markedly in the opposite direction. Although there was a very dramatic specific endpoint, the change in views had been a long time bubbling further upstream. Let's look this week at what happened. Rachel? Uh, yes. So I found a great source um, from Yale University about energy history called the end of the big dam era. And that's basically what we're talking about today. So the late 19th and early 20th centuries were the era of the big dam, where large scale dam construction was a demonstration of American engineering might, bringing hydroelectric power and economic growth to the country. However, as the downstream effects, pun intended, accumulated, they became harder to ignore. And quoting from this source, Grand Coulee and the Dalles Dam on the Columbia River, for instance, inundated the river's last dip net fishing sites. Garrison Dam on the Missouri River displaced 90% of three affiliated tribes. Environmental costs were equally devastating. Concrete walls trapped sediment, drowned wetlands, and dramatically transformed river ecologies. Salmon symbolized this ecological tragedy, particularly on the Columbia Basin, where salmon catches plummeted two-thirds by 1960. By the 1990s, several Pacific salmon species were officially endangered. So the major turning point occurred in the 1950s, when the Reclamation Bureau proposed building a large hydropower and storage dam in Echo Park in Dinosaur National Monument as part of the Colorado River Storage Project, or CRSP. The Sierra Club and other environmentalist groups opposed the Echo Park project, and after a long protracted battle, got the Reclamation Bureau to remove the Echo Park Dam from their plans. This was the major, first major anti-dam victory, and environmentalists followed up this success with two more. Um, they opposed dams built right outside Grand Canyon National Park. Those proposed dams would have created lakes at the Grand Canyon's southern and northern ends. However, as a concession, the Reclamation Bureau built a coal-powered uh, Navajo generating station to meet electric power demand in the region. Um, another major blow to the Big Dam era were the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970 and the Endangered Species Act of 1973. 
these acts created legal obstacles to dam construction that environmental groups could use to their advantage, slowing or halting construction while cases slowly wound their way through courts. Also, legislators were reluctant to fund large-scale dam construction projects during the economic turbulence of the 1970s. And another factor was the proliferation of nuclear and fossil fuel power plants. The share of hydroelectric power generation fell from over 30% in 1940 to only 12% in 1980. Um, there have been some missteps in the anti-dam movement. One of the major missteps that the anti-dam opposition made was in agreeing to CSRP's other plans in response to canceling the Echo Park Dam project. The Glen Canyon Dam was one of those projects. Despite the Sierra Club seeing how big of an error they made, they had no recourse to stop the construction of Glen Canyon Dam. In 1963, the dam was completed and the canyon was inundated by the Colorado River. And quoting from uh, a glencanyon.org, which is an anti-dam organization. David Brower, the Sierra Club's executive director at that time, called Glen Canyon Dam, quote, America's most regretted environmental mistake, end quote. And now the Glen Canyon Dam has become the focal point of anti-dam activism. I'm quoting from the Yale source, the decline of dam building coincided with a movement to dismantle hydropower dams and restore rivers. Anti-dam literature and demonstrations in the 1970s focused on the Glen Canyon Dam, which inundated a scenic canyon upstream from the Grand Canyon. Edward Abbey, through his monkey wrench gang of eco-saboteurs, and Earth-first activists dreamed of blowing up Glen Canyon. So it's become this symbol of, of um, the dams and what these organizations are opposing, um, changing the natural landscape and, and flooding these beautiful canyons. Um, another big uh, turning point in anti-dam uh, activism was the collapse of the Teton Dam. Um, so the Teton Dam was, uh, constructed in southeastern Idaho um, from February 1972 to June 1976. Um, the Bureau of Reclamation designed the dam and awarded the construction contract to Morrison Knudsen Company Incorporated. And the, the contract award totaled $39,476,142. Um, quoting from uh, the uh, US Bureau of Reclamation website, on June 5th, 1976, Teton Dam in southeastern Idaho catastrophically failed. Early that Saturday morning, bulldozer operators tried in vain to plug seepage holes on the downstream face of the dam. By 11 a.m., a torrent of water ripped through the dam, releasing more than 1 million cubic feet per second. The communities of Sugar City, Rexburg, and Wilford were battered by the trees, houses, cattle, and cars carried by the floodwaters. In the end, 11 people died, and there was millions of dollars in property damage. Um, in addition to the loss of life and livelihoods, the environmental impact was immense. Uh, quoting again from the website, the force of the failure destroyed the lower part of the Teton River, washing away riparian zones and reducing the canyon walls. This seriously damaged the stream's ecology and impacted the native Yellowstone cutthroat trout population. The force of the water and excesses sediment also damaged stream habitat in the Snake River and some tributaries and also tens of thousands of acres of land near the riverbanks were stripped of topsoil. So after the collapse, um, an investigation was conducted and the panel found two probable causes, though an actual cause wasn't determined. The first was the flow of water under highly erodible and unprotected fill, 
through joints and unsealed rock beneath the grout cap and development of an erosion tunnel. So once water got into this fill soil, there was no stopping it. Um, the second probable cause was, quote, cracking caused by differential strains or hydraulic fracturing of the core material, end quote. Um, so after the collapse of the Teton Dam, the Safety of Dams Act was enacted November 2nd, 1978. And quoting from the, the act itself, the, the wording of the act, um, it was, quote, an act to authorize the Secretary of the Interior to construct, restore, operate, and maintain new or modified features at existing federal reclamation dams for safety of dams purposes, end quote. And under this act, all Bureau of Reclamation dams are periodically reviewed for resistance to seismic activity and for physical deterioration over time. And um, so at, the, at this time, all Bureau of Reclamation dams do get reviewed on an annual basis, and every four years there's a more, more in-depth uh, review, more comprehensive review um, to, to search for these weaknesses that, that may spring up over time. So what does modern anti-dam activism look like today? The modern movement is now focused on a few areas of attention. The first is floodplain protection. Quoting from the glencanyon.org uh, website, Floodplains act as sponges to store water, filter sediment, and reduce the velocity of rivers during high water periods. Periodic flooding is crucial to the rejuvenation of riparian habitats. This protection is key to the survival of many rivers, including, for example, the greater Yellowstone rivers, where construction is a major threat. Um, the second focus is hydropower dam relicensing. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, has jurisdiction over many hydropower dams, and must license them to dam their rivers for hydropower generation. Licenses typically last 30 to 50 years. During the relicensing procedure, interested members of the public can provide input into the environmental assessment. This is currently underway with the Santee Cooper Hydroelectric Project. Bureau of Reclamation dams are, however, not subject to FERC relicensing. Water quantity is the third area of attention. Inadequate flow in rivers is caused by overallocation, sprawl, and agriculture. Natural flow must preserve resources and values, which include fish as well as recreation. American Rivers and the Washington Environmental Council are working together to address this issue on the rivers of the Pacific Northwest. And the fourth major area is dam removal. Actual dam removal has long been viewed as a radical fringe facet of the river restoration movement. The paradigm has shifted over the last decade. Hundreds of small dams have filled with sediment and are being, re being considered for decommissioning. The Matalhia Dam on the Ventura River, which is 200 feet high, has filled with sediment and it has become necessary to remove it to arrest further destruction to the river corridor and ecosystem downstream. As another example of negative impacts, the water in the Columbia River frequently exceeds the maximum tolerable temperature as a result of dams. So um, obviously a lot of the major anti-dam um, activism is happening in the West, but there's also a considerate movement in the Eastern United States as well. So, Bill, would you like to talk about that? Yes. So, as you just said, um, we've been focusing so far in this episode primarily on the West, especially because of the spectacular collapse of the Teton Dam in 1976, which brought to an end the major dam construction era. 
and this is something that we saw at the museum in Boise, Idaho when I was visiting you, and so we decided to talk about this. Uh, but we also did an episode recently on the Cary Act uh, irrigation reclamation projects in the Mountain West in places like Idaho, uh, Wyoming, and to a lesser extent to other nearby states such as Utah. But we also do need to talk about the situation on the other side of the country. So as you just said, Rachel, there is also movement in the eastern United States, especially in the historically densely developed Northeast, uh, places with decent elevation changes and a lot of historic factories had been there and so forth. Uh, And this movement is pushing to gradually remove abandoned mill dams built in the 19th century and earlier. Uh, These dams were sometimes built on navigable rivers and streams, but more often were built on sections that were rocky or tidally inconsistent in order to provide water wheel power for early mills and factories, and eventually sometimes later on, beginning in 1880, to generate electric power. They were typically less likely to be used for irrigation roles than in the West, given the differences in climate, rainfall, and water use laws between the regions. Uh, But to give a sense of the scale of the situation in this part of the country, where I am as opposed to Rachel's part of the country, the Hudson River Valley in New York State has roughly 1,600 dams just on its various tributaries, and that is just one of many, many rivers across the northeastern United States, all in a similar situation. And again, there are obviously dams elsewhere in the eastern United States, but the reason I'm focusing on that is because that's where a lot of the dams are because of that concentration of early mill development and the differences in uh, the elevation, right? If you have rivers coming down from a steep area to the coast, uh, as opposed to many of the flatter areas of the Midwest or the American South, that's a different situation. The rivers are historically used differently uh, and so forth. And so uh, the situation uh emerge differently with regard to damming and therefore is going to be different in terms of the focus of the movement to uh, get rid of these dams. The reasons in favor of the dam removal position in the eastern U.S. are that these dams are generally not in use but remain in place with the various ecological consequences that even small dams can bring, and that multitudes of these very old dams have been officially assessed as being at significant risk of collapse from severe weather events and tree falls. Fixing them to a safe level would be very expensive and arguably pointless. This is obviously in contrast with the active in-use major dams in the western United States that are much, much larger. There are, however, also serious concerns about the consequences of removing these dams, not only after centuries of their existence modifying the local ecology, especially in places where the dams block tidal estuary flows deep inland, but also because of how many bad industrial runoff chemicals like PCBs may now linger in the sediment buildup behind many of these dams. Keen listeners to this program will recall that even in the late 19th century, as we discussed in my mini-episode about the creation of the U.S. Fish Commission in the 1870s, it was already becoming apparent that factories generated all kinds of horrendous riverborne pollutants hostile to life, and that that problem only grew worse Uh, over the following 100 years with the rise of the synthetic industrial chemistry that we've also discussed on past episodes. A lot of those chemicals are now believed to be slumbering behind these abandoned and dilapidated dams. Nevertheless, the government of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, for example, 
has made dam removal, at least in some cases, an official priority and one they celebrate. The Division of Ecological Restoration has posted online a six-part docuseries with UMass Amherst on eight recent dam removal projects. The U.S. Geological Survey is similarly enthusiastic about dam removal, stating that, quote, aquatic connectivity projects such as removing dams and modifying culverts have substantial benefits. The restoration of natural flow conditions improves water quality, sediment transport, aquatic and riparian habitat, and fish passage. These projects can also decrease hazards faced by communities by lowering water surface elevations of floodwaters and by removing the risk of dam breaches associated with aging or inadequate infrastructure, end quote. Again, it's important to remember that for many of these communities, these dams, which are in some cases just earthen dams and in some cases are made out of other materials, uh, a lot of them are at huge risk of collapse. If there's a particularly large flood, a hurricane, something like that, if there's trees growing on the earthen ones and those trees can get ripped out by a storm or you know get hit by lightning or die for some other reason and then rot away uh, and create a hollow space in the dam, these are all significant risks. And even if there's no risk to the dam, but you still have the area behind the dam that has a higher uh, sort of pool of water, that if that gets uh, raised for some reason by something happening upstream, then that can flood out uh, neighboring areas of a town as well. And so these are all significant risks that many of these communities have to consider. And a lot of these dams are under the jurisdiction of the state governments or the federal government. And so there's a lot of interest in trying to get these removed, as I'll mention more about in just a moment. UMass Amherst and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute have also released a study in February 2021 finding that the volume of sediment trapped behind these small New York and New England dams has likely been greatly overstated, and in many cases the sediment effects of removing the dams would be minimal downstream. Some 600 such dams have already been removed in these states anyway. And this gets to an interesting question is, what is the scale of this dam removal movement? And it's actually quite a bit larger than I would have thought, although again, remember, we are in many cases talking about very little dams in the eastern United States as opposed to these gigantic dams in the American West that Rachel was talking about. However, dam removal on both ends of the country is chugging along now. According to a report by AmericanRivers.org, which maintains a dam removal tracking database, 57 dams were removed in 2021, reconnecting more than 2,131 miles of river that were previously obstructed by dams. And these removals occurred in 22 different states, uh, including both coasts. And they brought the recorded national running total of removed dams since 1912 up to 1,957. And we'll probably cross the 2,000 removed dams milestone uh, in a, you know a year or so. The infrastructure bill that Congress passed last year in 2021 included $2.4 billion for the removal, retrofit, and rehabilitation of dams. And as always, you can check out all the sources that we've cited today uh, linked at a PDF up with the episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com when this episode goes live. So, Rachel, I will return to you now to get your thoughts on this topic, especially uh, some of the similarities and differences that we see in the uh, attitudes toward and movement uh, against dams in both halves of the country? Uh, I guess I, I'm most struck by just how extensive um, the anti-dam movement is in the East. I think there's obviously a pretty um, strong uh, emphasis on the Western U.S. because of these grand dam projects. 
Um, but we can't really overlook the small dam removal that's happening in the east. And and I think uh, I, I definitely um, was surprised to learn that it's so um, extensive in the east and that there's just so many of these like small mill type dams in the, in the east United States. Yeah, definitely. I was at a cleanup day in a river gorge on the Charles River, and there were two dams just in the area that we were working in, right? Like, I mean, and that's not counting like an additional spillway dam next to a main dam, uh, which they had to rehab that for safety reasons. Uh, I think when I was maybe in high school, thereabouts, might have been a little bit after that. Um, These are everywhere, right? Like I cited that number about the Hudson River Valley. This is true on basically any river of any significant size and all of its tributary streams in New England, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, places like that, right? Anywhere that's a former industrial hub uh, or a significant activity hub even before the industrial era, right? Because mills originally were literal mills like for, you know, grain and stuff like that, right? Before they were factory mills, uh, textile mills, shoe mills, things like that. And these were everywhere. They were being built from basically almost as soon as the settlers started arriving from Europe in the 1600s to this area. And they were continuously being built into the 19th century. And, uh, and as I said, eventually, um, toward the end of the 19th century, you start getting hydroelectric dams. Although, again, most of those are in other parts of the country. We've obviously talked previously about uh, Great Lakes region dams uh, for hydropower, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and all the ones that you mentioned earlier in this episode in the American West. Now, I do think that one significant difference here, and that's going to affect attitudes both at an official level and a public level, is are the dams still in use versus are they not, right? And and again, to clarify, we're not really talking so much in these examples uh, about some of those like dams that create an artificial lake or pond for the purposes of, you know, stocking it with fish and having recreational activities. We're not not talking about those, I want to be clear, because those have significant issues, especially safety issues as well. Uh, but for the most part, we are talking about um, what, what you would say dams for a purpose of generating some kind of power, whether it's electric power or just mechanical power for a water wheel for use in something else, right? That the, the idea is the, the lake is part of the function of the dam, but is not the purpose of the dam. That's obviously different in terms of irrigation in the West. But I think there is a significant difference in terms of whether these are in active use or not. Generally, in the part of the eastern United States that I'm talking about, they're not. That's obviously not the case if we move into like the Tennessee Valley and so forth. Um, and there are some that are probably considered to be in use even in the area that I've been talking about. But you contrast that with the dam situation in places like Idaho, uh, California, anywhere on the Colorado River, anywhere on the Columbia River, right? Tons and tons of dams. They're being used for irrigation purposes actively. They're being used for hydroelectric power production and so forth. So even if they're old, even if they're controversial, even if they have these ecological damages and consequences that are indisputable and undeniable, they are still in active use currently. That is not the case in the parts, in the types of dams that I've been talking about in the northeastern United States, because those were pretty much all decommissioned and abandoned uh, mill dams 
that were associated with a particular little building or complex of buildings and now is just left there. Um, usually water flows over the top of them. So that's the setup for most of those. Um, but uh, the situation I think is different and I think that affects the policy valence there. Yeah, in, in Idaho, we do enjoy pretty inexpensive power due to hydroelectric generation. So I think that definitely changes the considerations quite a bit because if we get rid of the dams, then we're going to be spending a lot more on power. And at this point, I don't know if renewables are a good replacement. So we would be switching from hydropower to fossil fuels. And so what are the ramifications of that until we do get a, maybe a more robust renewable infrastructure? And hydropower is seen as a clean energy, even if there are quite a few ecological impacts, it's still seen as a relatively clean form of, of electric generation. So it, there are definitely quite a few complex uh, things to consider um, when considering dam removal projects. Bit of a similar conversation to the question of decommissioning nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. Not exactly. exactly the same set of discussion points, but there's pros and cons that have to be weighed. However, as we said, it's very, very hard to argue with the quite immediate damage uh, to the environment uh, that comes from these dams, especially these huge dam projects on places like the Colorado River and the Columbia River and, and so forth. Yeah, uh, recreation is obviously another huge thing in Idaho. So yeah, we, we are always... Uh, studying salmon numbers, the spawn numbers, and it's always pretty sad. I think there was like one good season in the past like 10 years, but it's usually pretty dire news coming from the, the spawning sites. So that is also a huge thing to consider as well. I will say the old timey type of, you know, little Eastern dams are not completely absent in the American West as well. I think that's worth at least a mention uh, you and I went tubing on the mm -hmm. Boise River and uh, with your uh, your husband and your sister, and we did go over a couple of those, I think. Yeah, there were a, a, a couple small diversion dams that, that we did go over. and um, You almost we, can't see them, which goes to show you how small they are, as yeah. opposed to like gigantic carry act dams in southern Idaho or whatever. Right. And just just a few miles upriver from where we launched, there is quite a, a big uh, a big dam um, that creates a reservoir. So Lucky Peak Reservoir is a big reservoir that is upstream of the Boise River from from town. And that is also a consideration. I think it's pretty old. It's an Army Corps of Engineer dam. And but I think it's nearing um, the end of its life cycle at this point. It is quite, quite old at this time. So that's something to keep an eye on as well, because the entire city would be flooded if something were to happen to that dam. And that, again, I think is another parallel with the question around nuclear power plant decommissioning. Um, again, not a one-to-one -one comparison, but similar ballpark there is this question of, like, should you remove these dams immediately or should you be coming up with some sort of a phased schedule? Does that line up with relicensing conversations? 
conversations about projected lifespans and so forth. And you got to be careful because some of these dams are not that safe, even the Western ones. We've seen Western ones besides Teton Dam. We've seen other ones that have, you know, served for many decades, suddenly have a problem and collapse. It's not out of the question. So there is that that debate point there of, of should we be planning on removing these type of dams or should we be replacing them as is? Much to think about. <laughs> much to consider. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on this week to talk about the Teton Dam collapse in your neck of the woods in 1976 and with it, the end of American dams. Yeah, thanks for having me.